we're going to continue reading from Ecclesiastes. We'll start at uh, chapter 9, verse 1. So if you want to follow along in your Bible or on the screen at home, uh, just uh, let us read these words, and then we'll talk a little bit about what we see. Ecclesiastes 9, verse 1. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of men are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no more reward. For the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no one, no more to share in all that is under the sun. And that's the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well. As usual, Solomon's just as cheery as ever. And, and yet, it's really important with this little book to remember the context. Context is everything with this. He is a man who, by all accounts, had everything that everybody thinks they want. The best house in town. A nice pool and a pool house and a nice cars and a big garage to put them in. You know, he has, he has all the wealth. He has all the women. He has all the power and influence he could ever want. Everything Solomon wanted, he got. And at the end of his life, he was miserable. And we're listening to his misery here. But he's also considered the wisest man that ever lived because he prayed for wisdom and God gave it to him. And so in his misery, he's also applying his wisdom. And so that's what we get when we read Ecclesiastes is a miserable old man who's also very wise, trying to help us understand the thing that he's learned the hard way. How many of you have advanced degrees from the School of Hard Knocks? <laughs> I do. <laughs> I have certain diplomas that I'm really proud of, but the, the, the certificates, the scars, and the various other parchment uh, records of my failures have come way more frequently. And they are that School of Hard Knocks. And so this is what he means when he says, basically, I've lived the life most of you dream of, and all it has done is left me feeling as though my life was meaningless. And what he wants us to understand is that he would rather we learn from him how not to have such a meaningless existence. So our teacher today is coming back to that theme that everybody dies. There's no getting around it. Everybody dies. And 
The more I think about it, I, there's something I've said for years um, that I, I think is, is technically correct. Uh, we're all going to experience death unless the Lord comes in our lifetime. And technically that's correct. But even in that we die, that is to say our faulty flesh is replaced with the resurrection body. That's, that's described in scripture. We, those of us who are studying Revelation and, and all the related texts on Wednesday nights, you know that, that at some point we get changed in the twinkling of an eye from this existence, this form of existence to the higher form that Jesus already knows as the firstborn of the resurrected dead. You know, so he's, he's living the way we're going to live when we are resurrected. And even those who have died are with them in spirit right now, but they too will be resurrected from the grave. So, so in a sense, every living person will, upon God's choice of day, die to this flesh and be reborn to this resurrected existence. So everybody's got to die. Everybody has to experience death. And... You know, I, I have, over the years of my ministry, encountered, in particular, men. It, it's funny, there are certain things that are very consistent, even though people are all very different and unique, but there are certain consistencies. I've, I've met men who are at a certain place in life, and I feel myself kind of on the cusp of that, too, where you begin to realize, you know, I'm, I'm going to be 59 in May, and and, and I start thinking, you know, I can kind of see retirement from here. I have no interest in retirement at all. I couldn't afford it anyway. But, but, but I, I can see it from here, and it changes the way I look at life a little bit. It's like my whole life, as most men feel, and I'm not saying women don't do this too, but it's more common to men, that, that your whole life is about what you've done as a career to supply the needs of your family, to meet the needs of your family. And so you, you start reflecting on how that's going to come to a close, and then you're going to have to find a different sense of identity because your identity has always been, you know, husband, father, provider, teacher, financial manager, pastor, airline pilot, you know, whatever, right? And so when you get to this point, you start thinking about things. And, and these men, even though I found it almost impossible to have a healthy men's group in a church, <laughs> what I have found is, is that one or two men at a time will talk to one or two men at a time, including their pastor, if it's a male, about how they're kind of starting to evaluate their life a little bit. You know, they're starting to think about what they've done that they're happy about and what they wish they'd done differently. They're starting to evaluate what meaning life is gonna have when it's no longer about the thing you do to earn a living. And, and they start wondering about things like that, you know? and. It's, I think that's where I see Solomon here. Like he's gotten to this point where, you know, he's put all of this kingdom business in motion and it's just kind of running, you know, like a good government or a government of any kind really is kind of running and there are people that he has who are taking care of things, you know, and, and, and he's got time to just, you know, like write the Proverbs, you know, and write Ecclesiastes and, and reflect on his life. And... So we can relate to him, you know, we can connect with him here. And wisdom, something we all have, it's just a question of how much and how well it's applied, right? Wisdom urges us to consider our mortality. 
to take it seriously that we're not here in this life forever, that it's temporary. And like it or not, life goes on after you're gone. It just does. So I got to thinking about this as I was writing today for today's message. And I, and I thought, you know, if you remember in chapter three, Solomon said there's a season for everything. That's a very famous, you know, to everything, turn, 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 right? I mean, there's a season for everything. And, and he talks about that, but he speaks in more like global terms. He speaks as a king. So I kind of wrote my own version of a season. And I thought just a season for life, like, like what is... That you've heard this analogy before, but you know, how many graves have I stood in front of? I mean, hundreds and hundreds. And, and, and I look and, and you have a name and you have a start date and an end date and a dash and their whole life is that dash, right? You know, everybody knows that. They, like, like there's this whole person, this, this whole lifespan and all this influence and everything. And, and most of us, 99% of us are memorialized by a dash between our start date and our end date. And what happens in the dash? This is what I thought. I thought, in, in every life there are seasons. A time to be born and a time to be utterly dependent upon a mother's love and tender care and a father's provision and protection. A time for exploration and risk-taking. A time for independence and self-discovery. A time for courage and pain. A time for planning and implementation. A time for servant leadership and self-sacrifice. A time for honest reflection and wise judgment. A time for giving and receiving and for letting go. A time for acceptance and grace. A time for contemplation and time for discernment of one's life and relationships. A time for preparation to meet the Creator. And a time for repentance and transformation. And I thought, well, if Solomon wrote this, he probably would have included more and left out some. But, but just as I tried to make this short list, and it's, it's kind of, in my opinion, it's more male-oriented list. I, I will own that. But, but what I was thinking about was just how the seasons of our life are. Like, like we, start, we all start life as being uh, utterly dependent on our mothers. And in most traditional homes, Mothers are dependent on the men, the husbands, to provide cover while they take care of these helpless little babies. And so the men protect and provide, you know. And, and then this baby grows into this little explorer, you know. And, and this analogy is so out of date, but it was, you know, my children, my, my little ones all were little in the 90s. And, and you know, it, in, every, in every life, there's a season for putting a peanut butter sandwich in the VCR, right? Right? And, and I don't know what your kids are doing now, Casey, but it's along the same lines, I'm sure, you know. In every life, there's a, there's a season for, believe it or not, my, my three-year-old granddaughter put her little brother in the dryer, last fall and turned it on. <laughs> uh, it turned out okay. <laughs> but, but, you know, for every life, there's a time for, for exploration and adventure that you wonder upon reflection how you survived it. You know, when I talk about my school of hard knocks, I am not kidding you when I say I saw the light at the end of the tunnel and it was a train. You know what I mean? Like, like there, there, the, the, the number of dumb things I've done and lived to tell about isn't fair, but I thank God for it. And maybe it's so I can stand here and serve you. But there's a time for that. 
And then there's a time for, for you know, growing up. Um, Courtney and I were talking before the service, you know. Um, I, was, I was pretty immature and naive and, and, and uh, uh, I wouldn't say reckless, but, but, you know, pretty self-centered, I guess. And then I found out I was going to be a father. <laughs> like a light switch, man. Changed, changed my life literally overnight. Like all of a sudden, I said, okay, playtime's over. It's time to be a responsible adult. Now, for those who don't have children, this next part might not be as meaningful to you, but trust me, there's truth here that you can use too. Because see, once you become aware that you're in a season for you, of life where you're responsible for other people, helpless little people, people who are developing into to, you know, citizens and, and members of Christ's family and, and members of your own family, you know, you start thinking about these things. I hope. Because there's tons and tons of evidence out there. And when you have educators in your life, you're especially aware of this, especially those who work in the public schools. You find out very quickly that there are a lot of people that that hadn't changed them like it should. (laughs) There are a lot of parents who, upon reflection, realized that they were still all about themselves even while there was a child in their life. And, and the fact is, is that nothing should sober you up and make you think more maturely about your life and your relationship with God and with your fellow human beings than being responsible for the rearing of a child. It sobered me up. It made me change in ways that I cannot, I, I mean, there was my life before being a father and my life after being a father. And people who knew me in my life before being a father would say that I was pretty average and and above average as far as decency and stuff. I didn't do things that I'm ashamed of. I don't have any stories in my skeletons in my closet or anything. But but I lived that free life that a young man lives when he's, you know, driven mostly by his flesh and not particularly wise, you know. And, And then when I became a dad, I was like, whoa, it's time to grow up. It's time to be responsible. And and any parent in my book, who's, who's worth their salt is going to be a parent who understood that for a season they were gonna to have to be more devoted to their family's well-being than their own. That that's the essence of being a parent, that, that it's a self-sacrificing thing. Now we talked last week about how we can take that too far and turn it into a pursuit of stuff and a competition with the other parents in town. And we can really, we can really make ourselves look foolish by trying to provide a better life for our kids than everybody else's or, or help them to keep up with their neighbors and, and all that vanity and sanity that we talked about. But, but the basic reality is, is that what, what Solomon wants us to understand is, is that when you live for the sake of the flesh, at the end of your life, you won't have anything to show for it. You won't. There won't be anything of value to show for it. I, you know, uh, how, how, much, uh, how much did Solomon leave behind when he died? The answer is all of it. <laughs> he didn't take any of it with him, you know? Um, they, those people who become so obsessed with the flesh, they, they are consumers who will ultimately even consume their own. That's the truth. 
They, they will consume their own, whether they, you know, we, we, you know, you joke about hamsters and, and various other creatures in, in the pet shop who, you know, have to be separated from the babies or else they'll eat their young, right? You know, um, adult human beings consume their young too. They devour them by obsessing over their flesh more than their children's well-being. And those children end up being a living legacy of something really bad and ugly. I mean, it would be foolish to try to drive the point that all of our troubles in this world are due to poor parenting. I wouldn't say that. But I will say that parenting is all about influence. Most things are, you know. And if parent isn't the principal influencer then somebody else will be. That sounds like something John would put in one of his books, that, that, that there, are, there are people who ought to influence our children, and there are people who ought not to influence our children. And we need to own that. And what Solomon is saying is, is that there are certain aspects of life that come to everybody, and it has everything to do with your focus, you know, and, and Solomon's main theme, I always like to come back to this in this Ecclesiastes series, is never forget that what he says at the beginning is life's pretty meaningless, and then what he says at the end, unless it's devoted to God. I mean, that's the gist of Ecclesiastes. So, so it's like I always bracket every message from this series with those truths. Just keep in mind that what he's saying in the end is all of it's pretty pointless unless it's devoted to God. So if you want to raise godly children then you have to ask yourself, why? And this comes back to why some men of a certain age tend to reflect heavily and even get a little discouraged and depressed, you know, something called a midlife crisis or whatever, right? They tend to reflect heavily on their lives because they start trying to figure out what they did and what they have to show for it, right? And that's what Solomon is saying. And, and you know, if you haven't read the, the Chronicles and, and so forth lately, I, I can tell you that David and Solomon were part of a pretty messed up dysfunctional family. <laughs> uh, they did a lot that seemed to make God happy, but in the end, they destroyed their family in the process. And Proverbs 22, 6 says, train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. And the Bible has numerous admonitions to raise your children as godly people. And here's the point. This is the point. There's really only one thing that can outlast you and have real meaning. The only legacy you can leave behind that really has any meaning. You, you can leave behind brass plaques acknowledging you. You can leave behind wealth that people use for good or evil. You, you can leave behind uh, words and, and deeds that'll be remembered occasionally, but gradually forgotten. And someone else will say the same words and deeds in life and get more credit than you did, even though you said it first. You can leave behind all of that, but, but if you leave behind a human being, whether a child or someone that was like a child to you, that has reproduced the noblest and the most honorable things that you had to offer to the world, 
you've left something behind of value. Your influence is more significant. And I think this is why Solomon is so darn depressing in Ecclesiastes, because he can't even say that. Because after him, Israel becomes a train wreck. You know, first it's just one car rattling off the ties instead of riding the rail, but after a while, Israel just starts going, and it's gone, man. It's just a train wreck. And if I can, if I can reflect on my life and say, there may be just a few people out there, no more significant for me than my own children, who make the world better because I help them to be better. And because God was the most important thing in my life, and they knew that, then I've left something behind of value. I can go to my grave in peace. You think that's really what Solomon is trying to tell us? Don't be like me. How many of us have lectured our children like that? Don't do as I've done, do as I say. <laughs> do as I say, not as I do, right? We all parents, we all say that because we, we already know that we're a poor reflection of what we're trying to impart to our kids. You know what? The truth is, be a better reflection. That's the truth. If I know anything about good parenting or good leadership, it is that it has to be reflected in order for it to be meaningful. And if it's just a lot of words, go write a book and give it to your kid and say, I wrote a book about everything I want you to be as a human being. But if you want them to be, like I remember when I had my first child, I didn't know whether I was gonna get a girl or a boy. And I'm gonna stop here, but, but, but this is a real life example of what I'm talking about. At the time Bethany was born, I was thinking, Oh boy, if I have a girl, I'm really worried because there were some girls in our neighborhood who were, you know, adolescents and they really scared me. You know, they were just uh, mature. Um, West sees them in school, I'm sure, you know. Dress inappropriately, talk inappropriately. And I thought, oh my Lord, I don't want a daughter. Please don't give me a daughter. <laughs> you know, I got a daughter. And then it dawned on me as I held that little child in my arms. I looked over at her mother. This is a true story. I looked over at her mother and I thought to myself, the best way to raise this little girl into a Christian young woman, a godly young woman, is to adore her mother and to treat her mother the way I want men to treat her. So that's what I did. I focused on being the best husband I could be because I knew that that would have a more lasting impact on my children than me telling them, don't be like those girls, be like these, or, or, you know, or while I'm drinking and, and, and smoking and, and watching pornography on my computer say, don't go out there and get yourself pregnant, right? You know, I mean, <laughs> and again, I don't mean to judge those behaviors in and of themselves, but all I'm saying is, is that you've got to be a living example of what you want reproduced in this world. You just do. In your company, in your family. What we try to do here on the staff at the church is to have a single culture to where the staff is like a family and, and I as the head of the family try to reflect values that I wanna see reproduced and I try not to reflect values that I would not want to see reproduced. 
And I believe that that is the essence of this chapter nine passage from Ecclesiastes. And I believe it's time to stop talking about it and pray. <laughs> Let us pray. Almighty God, thank you. As I ramble and rant on, I hope, Lord, that your word is heard loudly and clearly in the hearts of your people and those who would be your people. Truth in love can sometimes come, sometimes sound like a lecture. Oh, Lord, just transform our hearts and make us the women and men that you want us to be. And knowing that it doesn't matter where we are in our lives, we still have the opportunity to leave a legacy that will reflect you in our hearts more than any of the things that we've done for the sake of our flesh. Help us, we pray, and fill us with your Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.